You're listening to a Ruach podcast brought to you from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I'm your host, Jamie Howison. This one comes from pretty deep in our archives. It's an idea exchange session recorded in January 2009 with Dr. Christopher Holmes, presenting a lecture entitled A Spoke in the Wheel, Bonhoeffer's Resistance to Hitler. Now, at the time, Chris was exploring a movement toward ordination in the Anglican Church. He was active in the parish of St. Margaret here in Winnipeg and was teaching at the time at Providence Seminary located just south of our city. He came the following year, actually, to do a field placement with us as he continued his explorations toward ordination. We witnessed his ordination to the diaconate, and then, at the end of the year, his ordination as a priest. Shortly after that, Chris up and left, moving to New Zealand, where he's currently professor in systematic theology at the University of Otego. Now, in the Southern Hemisphere, that teaching position is one of the premier theological positions. Christopher's that good, but he's also an extremely personable character, uh, humble and confident at the same time. What Christopher did in this lecture was to give us a look inside the life and thought of Bonhoeffer, Somebody who came with some pretty basic commitments around nonviolence as being part of the Christian way, and yet who was an active participant in a plot that worked toward the assassination of Adolf Hitler. And how do you hold that tension and hold your faith? Bonhoeffer, of course, was ultimately arrested, held in prison, and finally executed before the end of the war. That's all part of the story that Chris will explore with us. This podcast includes question and answers at the end. It runs just over an hour long, but I'd encourage you to just keep listening because the Q&A is pretty important. So, here's Christopher Holmes on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is my first time at an ideas exchange, and I'm thrilled to be here, uh, and I'm I'm quite... um, humbled by uh, how many are um, willing to come out on a cold January night to hear something about uh, the theology of, and life and witness of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So it's, uh, it's very good to have so many of you here. I have a handout. Uh, being a professor, of course, I, I can't not um, give a talk without a handout. And so I will give that to Jamie to uh, disseminate. I'll give you a sense of how I came to, to appreciate the theology of Dietrich Bonhoeffer when I was in seminary, uh, first I think my first year in seminary, we were required to read a little book by Bonhoeffer, which I'm sure some of you in this room have read, uh, entitled Life Together, uh, Reflections on, what is the subtitle? Reflections on Christian Community, I think. Um, and I was very taken by that book. And I, I sensed um, reading that book over 10 years ago now was that I, am, I was by no means finished with Bonhoeffer. And uh, he is someone who has accompanied me on my theological journey over the last uh, 15 years, really. Um, 
He is someone whose writings mean a, a tremendous amount to me. Uh, his writings have helped me not only um, articulate my own theological uh, understandings, but they've also helped me a great deal as, uh, as far as my preaching is concerned. Um, I am a church theologian, and so I don't, I believe that theology is, is to serve the church and to serve the mission of the church in the world. And so Bonhoeffer has helped me a great deal to appreciate what is the center of Christian faith and how that center uh, encroaches upon everyday existence. Um, I'd like to make a, uh, given that is probably, this is quite an eclectic group, I would assume, I'd like to just give you a sense of sort of the place from which I speak. Uh, I speak to you tonight, I speak to you tonight as a Christian. Uh, I am a Christian, and uh, I am a Christian in the Anglican uh, theological tradition, which is something of a mixed blessing at this point in time. Um, and I'm a preacher, and I'm a seminary theologian. I make my living training men and women for vocational Christian ministry out at Providence. And so I speak to you tonight from within the Christian faith, not from without. I, sp I speak from within. Um, and if, if I assume that everybody has received a handout, I've got uh, five, I could probably come up with 55 reasons, but I've got five listed anyways, or five, five reasons why I think Bonhoeffer um, is worth exploring. And I'm going to go through those briefly before I get into the, to the heart of my talk. By the way, I'm looking forward to conversation uh, afterwards. I am, I am very um, uh, eager to hear uh, about what kind of uh, reaction uh, the material generates. So I look forward to having some edifying and hopefully stimulating and challenging conversation uh, afterwards. Uh, why is Bonhoeffer worth exploring? Well, uh, first of all, uh, Bonhoeffer is a, is a theologian of the second article of the Creed. And by that, I mean that he is a theologian and a preacher who uh, took with utmost seriousness the contours of the second article of the Creed, namely, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Uh, Bonhoeffer's theology is, you might say, a Christocentric or a Christ-centered uh, theology. It is a theology that strives to yield to the, the Jew, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, through whom God is making all things new. Um, that all things new, of course, comes from Revelation uh, 20, 21, the fifth verse. Bonhoeffer's theology is a theology that teaches us that all talk about God must be disciplined by, by the Jew, Jesus Christ and his life and death and resurrection. So the first reason as to why I think he is worth exploring is because he takes the creed seriously, and therefore he takes Holy Scripture uh, seriously. One might not always agree in the way in which he takes it seriously, but I think the consensus, the scholarly consensus that has emerged is that this, this is a man who uh, was committed to the contents, to the living contents that are uh, uh, set out for us uh, in the classical creeds of Christendom. Uh, secondly, Bonhoeffer is uh, something of a prophet, not only in his day, but in ours as well. Uh, it is my judgment that few Protestants or few modern theologians, only Karl Barth on the Protestant side, I think, has exceeded the profundity of Bonhoeffer's uh, reading of the New Testament witness to Jesus. Bonhoeffer's understanding of Jesus from his early work to his later work manages to upset those on the theological and political left, and it manages to upset those on the theological and political right. And as an Anglican, that's particularly appealing to me as a tradition that has sought sometimes more successfully than others to, um, to move between those two extremes. 
he is of ecumenical appeal, you might say. And it's always interests me how very conservative Protestants uh, consider him to be an ally and how more uh, classically minded, let's say, liberal Protestants also, and to say nothing of Catholics, uh, consider him to be an ally. So there's something very appealing about a person who transcends a lot of the, 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 the divisions that have arisen uh, within uh, church life and certainly in, in um, not just North America, but in the world overall over the past uh, past century. Uh, it is my judgment that Bonhoeffer would not have us bless every revolution, which seems to me to be the temptation that continually, uh, to which the left continually succumbs, nor would he have us sanction what is, that is the status quo, which seems to me to be the temptation to which the right often succumbs. Third reason why I think he is uh, worth wrestling with. Bonhoeffer is deeply critical of many of the most sacred cows of modernity. As an aside, I just finished reading Charles Taylor's A Secular Age, which um, I'm sure some of you have read. It is a magnificent piece of work. And uh, he does it, I haven't encountered anybody who does a better job of accounting for the character of the modern world and what, gave, what birthed the modern world and how, uh, advent, how secularity in itself can be considered, secularity's relationship to modernity and how secularity can be considered in many, many senses modernity's bastard child. So, um, so anyhow, Bonhoeffer is deeply critical of mo- ma- ma- many of the most sacred cows of modernity. Uh, one of the most sacred cows of modernity is the notion that uh, the, what is good and uh, good action can be defined in relationship to ourselves. I will say much more about that later. Uh, in other words, Bonhoeffer is an insightful critic of the disenchanted, and I'm borrowing Charles Taylor's language here, of the disenchanted and radically horizontal world which we modern people have created for ourselves. Bonhoeffer helps us to see the profound inhumanity of a world wherein humans construct an account of reality solely on the basis of themselves. Fourth, uh, in Bonhoeffer, as you all know, there's a beauty, beautiful marrying of theology and biography. Um, although some scholarly treatments of Bonhoeffer border on veneration, or one might even say um, tend toward um, hagiography, uh, I will not succumb to that. You know that his having thrown a spoke into the wheel of the fanatical racism of his day cost him dearly. It cost him his life. 39 years old is an awfully young age to die. And then fifthly, Bonhoeffer's books, uh, most especially his Ethics, which is the, the text that really will serve as the basis for many of my comments tonight. Uh, Bonhoeffer's Ethics has generated some of the best and most intense uh, classroom conversation, classroom discussions that I have yet to enjoy as a, as a professor. Uh, whenever I use Bonhoeffer's works, I find that they create a hearing for themselves. I don't have to work to get students interested in, in the life and writings of this man. It just kind of seems to happen uh, naturally. By the way, Fortress Press, which is uh, in the midst of um, publishing a new, all of Bonhoeffer's works, uh, have recently retranslated his ethics, and it appeared in 2005. It's just absolutely marvelous, uh, the new translations, and that's um, what, I'll be, what I'll be using tonight. But you can, uh, you can, you can get all of his, almost all of his, his work is now available in English. Uh, there's very little of it that hasn't, hasn't been translated. But anyhow, with those five reasons in place as to why I think uh, Bonhoeffer is an important voice, I would like to get into the, the meat and potatoes of my, of my little talk here. Um, I've included some quotes that I will, f- will refer you to as I, as I move through. I'd like to give you tonight some sense, some sense, a very rudimentary sense of the theological grounds of Bonhoeffer's resistance to national socialism, to national socialism. 
and I will do so by roughly following the arguments contained in his ethics, which I just mentioned. And Bonhoeffer's ethics, I'm sure some of you have read it, is a compilation of 13 manuscripts uh, written in six phases or work periods between September 1940 and April 5th, 1943. April 5th, 1943 being the day in which Bonhoeffer was arrested and uh, thrown into the Tegel prison in Berlin. Uh, so it's a later work, later, I mean, later, goodness gracious, he died when he, he was murdered when he was 39, but it certainly comes later than the cost of discipleship in some of his other um, uh, well-known works. What distinguishes Bonhoeffer's ethics, I want to argue tonight, and renders it such a subversive work is its emphasis upon reality. Now, let me explain, let me explain. From the spring of 1933, and that was the spring when Hitler was elected Chancellor of Germany to April 1945, uh, when Bonhoeffer was executed at the Tegel prison in Berlin, the German people, German politics, and most German churches were held increasingly hostage and captive to an ideology which espoused the superiority of the German people. The party of the National Socialists gave voice to this. This ideology took root in the soil of a nation that was severely humiliated by the ev events of World War I and its aftershocks. The German people were a people who were desperately uh, desirous of a new destiny and a new future after the embarrassing and, uh, embarrassing and humiliating outcome of World War I. And what Bonhoeffer offers in his ethics is an account of reality that challenges such a destructive and pernicious ideology. Bonhoeffer argues that reality is something that comes to us from above. It's something that comes to us from above. Reality is something that confronts us or meets us rather than something that we construct for ourselves. Now, of course, the question is, what is reality for Bonhoeffer? What is reality for Bonhoeffer? On the basis of his reading of the Bible, and this is uh, the first quote on your handout, uh, quote A, uh, Bonhoeffer argues that reality is that which is revealed in Jesus Christ. So there, here, here you go. Here you start getting the um, theological meat and potatoes. He thinks, and as audacious and as foolish and as scandalous as this sounds, that um, the reality of God is something that's revealed, and that it's revealed in the life and death and resurrection of a particular Jew by the name Jesus of Nazareth. Reality is not something that originates with us in the stories that we tell about ourselves. Rather, reality for Bonhoeffer is something that is disclosed and revealed in the new world that a first century Jew named Jesus creates by his life and death and resurrection. In short, Jesus Christ for Bonhoeffer, his words and his works define what is real. Many, many, many books, and to say nothing of countless scholarly articles have been written explicating just what I've said in the last 90 seconds or so. I'm giving you the very, the, the, the abbreviated version. Um, but it's, it's important to think about the nature of reality, when, especially when you're, when you're living in the context of, um, or living underneath a totalitarian regime. Because it, as you will know, uh, totalitarian regimes are those which permit no dissent. They permit no dissent. For a community to challenge the storyline is for it to invite wrath upon itself. What Bonhoeffer and a few other, a few other pastors and theologians increasingly became aware of as the national socialist machine gained more and more power 
and allegiance from the German people through the 1930s was that the National Socialists demanded the complete subservience of the individual and also the church to the state, the complete subservience of the individual and also the church to the state. This troubled Bonhoeffer and others uh, quite deeply, others most especially, one could argue, Karl Barth. Uh, In Bonhoeffer's ethics, his concern is to articulate the extent to which reality, as revealed in Jesus Christ, subverts totalitarian claims. Reality as revealed in Jesus Christ subverts totalitarian claims. Only when one knows what is real can one resist false accounts of what is real. See, then the National Socialists, uh, part of their arrogance was they thought they were the only game in town, right? Uh, but contra the National Socialists, Bonhoeffer argued that there is another game in town. And that's a far more life-giving and far more profound and far more subversive reality. And the reality, that reality is found in God, in what God does through the life and death and resurrection of his son. Specifically, uh, or more specifically, one could say, reality is discovered. It's discovered in the rule of God that takes shape in the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, Bonhoeffer talks a lot about Jesus. Uh, and he does so because he thinks that it is in Jesus Christ that God and the world are enclosed. And that's a quote on your handout as well. I think that's quote uh, C, God, that God and the world are enclosed. Um, that might sound a bit ho-hum on first read, but when one takes into account Bonhoeffer's context, um, it is it is not anything but ho-hum. Well, certainly not ho-hum in our day and age either. Um, incidentally, I was reading uh, between changing diapers this morning, the focus section of the Globe and Mail, and um, I noticed a piece called uh, uh, Taking on the Believers, One Bus Billboard at a Time. Uh, Richard Dawkins, whom I'm sure you're all familiar with, has started a campaign this week wherein 800 buses across Britain will spread the atheist message, and that message is this. There's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. There's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. This will be on 800... Uh, buses in the UK as of very soon. And of course, the Pope of the new atheism is us underwriting that. That's, that's, that's interesting to me. So for someone like Dawkins, this notion that God and the world are enclosed in Christ is just, uh, just silly talk. It's just silly talk. It's just foolish. And many people were in Bonhoeffer's time. See, Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran. I will say more about that as time goes on. But a lot of Lutheran Christians in his day and age, and Germany was and nominally still is a Lutheran country, uh, we're tempted to think of, a, of the world as a place that beats to its own drum. Not so, argue Bonhoeffer. The world is enclosed. It is enclosed by the kingdom of God that takes shape in Jesus Christ. For Bonhoeffer, the world, the world, he wants to think theologically about the world. He, he wants, he's wrestling with his Lutheran, Lutheran inheritance, which tended to, some of you will be familiar with the language of the two kingdoms, which tended to be, be very reticent to talk about how the rule of God was taking shape in the here and now. I preferred to, preferred to see it more as a spiritual reality, not so much as a material reality. Bonhoeffer argued that the world is enclosed, and it is enclosed by God in Christ, and that the world is not a world that is alienated from God. God and humanity are not, in Jesus Christ, mutually exclusive. Christ is truly human and truly God embraces both. And so therefore the Christian church cannot withdraw from the world. And that's what a lot of his fellow Lutheran Christians were very tempted to do, to withdraw from the world. He argued we cannot do that. Why? Because to withdraw from the world is to withdraw from the world that God in Christ has formed community and friendship with. 
right? We cannot withdraw from the world because that is the world that God has so wrapped his arms around in his uh, beloved son. So it follows then uh, that because God has done this, the Christian community is to stand completely in the world. And again, to Lutheran ears, and Lutheran ears in the 1930s and 1940s, that was just, that was wild, right? That was wild. This idea that the Christian community is to stand completely in the world. The church is, for Bonhoeffer, a peculiar people. It is a peculiar people. It is peculiar because the church is a place where reality is uh, accepted, and I might say worshipped too. So the witness of the church in a totalitarian state is to remind the government of its task. And what is the government's task, both now and then and now? It's to establish justice, to establish justice. We could have a whole conversation about um, theological accounts of government, but I, I know that there's someone in the audience here who would do a better uh, job of that than, than, you know, I'll let them um, do that at another ideas exchange. But uh, anyhow, um, the church's task, whether it finds itself in a totalitarian context or not, is to remind the government that it is not Lord, <laughs> that Jesus is Lord. And the government, whether it, whether it recognizes it or not, uh, Bonhoeffer thinks, and I think our, our Lord would, would say the same thing, uh, has to recognize that it has a Lord. It is the Lord who reigns from, from an old rugged cross. And so Bonhoeffer, what, it, what he is trying to do in ethics and really all his writings, uh, the theme of government is a pervasive one, and he wants... He wants to um, help his, his, especially his fellow Lutheran Christians, to recognize anew that uh, we cannot treat the world and, uh, or the state, for that matter, as as, as, as something that uh, something that's autonomous, as something that beats to its own drums. That governments, the world is circumscribed, uh, that they're enclosed, that they're enclosed by a particular Jewish uh, Jewish man. What is so remarkable about Bonhoeffer's ethics, as well? And the theological fuel it offers for resistance is just how seriously Bonhoeffer takes the human situation. Now, he takes humanity seriously, precisely because God and Christ has taken humanity seriously. Um, I have a, a quote from page 83 and 84, which is on your handout. I think it's uh, quote C. Uh, he writes, God treads the way of humble reconciliation and thereby sets the world free. God loves real people without distinction. Real people being Jews as well as Gentiles, right? Jews are real people too. And Jesus, who is a Jew, <laughs> is one, uh, Bonhoeffer argues, on the basis of um, all kinds of statements that St. Paul makes, uh, is the true human being who creates new human beings. A true human being who creates new human beings. Um, this is what St. Paul in 2 Corinthians calls a new creation. So he understands Jesus to be one who liberates people liberates states, and he liberates the whole cosmos from the principalities and powers that kill and destroy. Now, this question about Jesus being the basic liberator and lover of humanity raises a, a basic question. And the question, and this is D, quote D, uh, is that of how Christ may take form among us uh, today and here. How Christ may take form among us today and here. That is Bonhoeffer's Question. It's a question that uh, we too, uh, I think, uh, as, as if we would call ourselves Christian anyways, uh, need, need to ask today. Uh, this is to ask how the new creation that Christ Jesus brings into being should appear among us today. One thing that Bonhoeffer recognized, and quite powerfully, is that the new creation excludes fascism. Fascism is, fascism is incompatible, 
absolutely incompatible with the new creation. Um, with these thoughts in mind, one cannot for a moment think that Bonhoeffer is any fan of anarchy. Uh, he is not a fan of an anarchy. Just because he was a, one of the lead architects in a plot to topple the government uh, does not mean uh, that he denies, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the place of government in God's world. There is a rightful kind of autonomy for government which is not at odds with Christianity. There is the rightful kind of autonomy for government which is not at odds with Christianity. Government does what God calls it to do when it works for justice. But what happened with the Nazis, with National Socialism, is that the government deified itself. It deified itself. The government cut itself off from anything beyond itself. There was nothing beyond the uh, National Socialist regime and its ambitions. And like all totalitarian regimes, there was no place for self-criticism. There was no place for dissent. What, what vexed um, Bonhoeffer's as much as the government's own deifying of himself, was the way in which the church, by and large, acquiesced to all of this, right? The church in Germany was, very, the Roman Catholic and the Protestant church, by and large, was very, very, very complacent. The church was guilty. The church was guilty. Even the motley collection of churches known as the Confessing Church, which was not a homogeneous entity by any stretch of the imagination, were not equally convinced that the church itself was at least partially responsible for the fallenness of government in Germany. Bonhoeffer took a lot of heat from a lot of different circles precisely because he argued that the church was responsible for the fallenness of government in Germany, that the church cannot be let off the hook for um, the current state of things. The church, by and large, underwrote or had underwritten and was underwriting what the state was doing. Uh, it, by and large, remained silent by not standing with the Jews. It abetted destruction. A Christian ethics, Christian action for Bonhoeffer is a life-giving ethics. It's life-giving action. And he thinks that what God accomplishes for our world in Jesus Christ is, above all, life. Thus, the church stands for life. Uh, by the cross and resurrection of this Jew, men and women, he argues, are freed for God and for neighbor. They are freed for God and for neighbor. In other words, they are freed to live uh, humanly, to be fully human. I, 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 um, it's, it's ironic, I find, that, that, that Richard Dawkins uh, refers to himself as a humanist. Um, I would like to think of myself as a humanist too, a theological humanist, and it's, it's amazing how that, that term has been so co-opted by a certain kind of ideology that Dawkins um, exemplifies. But, uh, but one, of the, one, of the, one of the sort of um, basic thrusts of the ethics is to talk about how the gospel humanizes how it makes men and women truly human on the basis of him who is the true human being. If we are to live, if, we, if the gospel is that which frees people, men and women, to live humanly, to be fully human, Bonhoeffer argues, is to live before God and for God. To live before God and for God. And to live before God and for God is to live before the neighbor and for the neighbor. And this is the essence of what it means to be human, what it means to be a, a creature created in God's image. That we may and should be human beings before God. That's a quote, uh, quote E from one page, uh, page 157. It's, it's really wild when you think about it. Um, Christians have not always been known over through the centuries as being people, as being the best humanists. But there's a deeply humanistic impulse and, and thrust, I think, at the heart of the Christian gospel. That the gospel makes men and women fully human. Humanity fully alive, I think, is what Irenaeus said many centuries ago. 
The National Socialists prohibited the ver- this very thing, this very notion that of, huma- of humanity fully alive. The National Socialists destroyed creaturely life, especially Jewish life, but as you will all know, they were no fa- fan fans of people who were, for example, disabled, people who could not tr- contribute to the well-being of the regime. They had little time for Only those who were supportive of the regime and able to sign on to its worldview were deemed truly human. It was only those who signed on to its ambitions who were, who were regarded as worthy of life. It is not an accident, then, that the Nazis were vehemently opposed to the notion that life is an end in itself. Rather, life needs to have utility. That's what they argued. It needs to have utility. Hence, the killing of the disabled, the elderly, and the affirmed, to say nothing of um, millions of Jews. Uh, Reflecting this past week, as I was writing my talk on what makes, makes Bonhoeffer's ethics so challenging, especially for us North Americans, is that Bonhoeffer really does believe that all facets or dimensions of human reality are taken on, those are his words, taken on by God in Christ. The material, the physical, the political, the economic, they're all taken on. The renewal of human life, the renewal of physical life, the renewal of material life, political life, economic life, all of these things are God's chief concerns. All facets and aspects of human existence are indeed indeed judged for their fallenness in Jesus and made new. And this is the theological basis for Bonhoeffer's account of what is good and what good action looks like. What is good action? And this is where we'll get into the question of, um, I almost shudder because I'm sure there are um, a variety of different views on this, 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 the question of pacifism. But uh, Bonhoeffer argues that good action is, is responsible historical action. Uh, to be responsible in one's historical situation is to love one's neighbor concretely. And concrete love is love that uh, loves people without distinction. It is love that responds to the needs of real people. Responsible historical action is as such political action, and political action Bonhoeffer regards as a form of love. And I think now we have reached the point where we can begin to get a handle of how one who called himself a pacifist, and it was so from the early 1930, uh, early 1930s onwards, how he could commit himself participate, be a lead architect in the plot to um, assassinate the Fuhrer. How could he be a co-conspirator? Bonhoeffer believed that we can and should actually obey Jesus's words, especially his words from the Sermon on the Mount. Again, for a Lutheran Christian, that's a pretty radical thing because the Sermon on the Mount was that which rendered you guilty before the commandments of God and it's that which drove you to God to seek the grace and forgiveness of God which would enable you in some small provisional way to do do that which Jesus tells you to do. Uh, um, That's how... It's amazing to to look at how the Sermon on the Mount has been read uh, by different Christian traditions. Uh, Lutherans and Anabaptists have not read the Sermon in the the same way. Uh, For example... But Bonhoeffer, as a Lutheran, argued that Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, as they come to us, especially in Matthew's Gospel, should not make us feel guilty. They are words that can be acted upon, should be acted upon, must be acted upon, and obeyed. Those of you who have read Discipleship, you could really uh, um, argue that discipleship is nothing but an extended theological commentary. The cost of discipleship is nothing but an extended theological commentary on Bonhoeffer's reading of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's a, it's a marvelous piece of work written when he was only 30, I think he was 32 when he wrote that. astonishing. Bonhoeffer's writings on conscience are especially helpful in terms of getting a, a grip on, on the, 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 
pacifism question. Bonhoeffer thinks that conscience, the redeemed conscience, is captive to the words of the living Lord Jesus. That conscience, therefore, has a new center. Conscience's center is not a series of principles or programs. The faithful conscience is centered upon the living Christ who speaks through the words of Holy Scripture. Because of this belief, Bonhoeffer became more and more convinced that the taking on of guilt was an acceptable thing to do. As a student of Scripture, he was all too aware of the commandment in Exodus 20.13, the commandment, you shall not murder. He was well aware of that. But he was also aware of the commandment that Jesus gave, which is to love one's neighbor as oneself. And in the name of the Fuhrer, a name of Adolf Hitler and the National Socialist Program, he knew that people were being killed and killed. Obedience to the commandment, he eventually came to believe, the commandment to love one's neighbor, meant becoming guilty before the commandment not to murder. That's, that's, there you have it. That the commandment to love meant being guilty before the commandment to not murder. You see, for Bonhoeffer, we cannot define what is good, what is good action ourselves, but only in relation to God's reality revealed in, in Jesus. Good action is action that is determined by a reality that lies outside of ourselves. For Bonhoeffer, Christian ethics or Christian action is, in essence, destabilized and disrupted. It's always destabilized and disrupted. Disrupted. Uh, the quote G on your handout from page 325, he writes, and this is this is. Fairly audacious, I think. Only Our only criterion is a living Christ, living Jesus Christ himself. Our only criterion for what is good, for what good action is. And some people um, think that this makes Bonhoeffer a relativist. A relativist because of statements like this. But he's not a relativist. What his point is simply is that Christian people cannot say in advance what love of God and love of neighbor will always look like. Neither you nor I can say in advance what love of neighbor will always look like. For the Christian community, judgments about good and evil, right and wrong, are to reflect the reality of God's reconciliation of all things in Christ. In other words, our judgments about what is good and evil are to, are to reflect the new world of love, justice, and peace that God has brought into being in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I think this is most helpful. <laughs> For it reminds us that we are not autonomous. We are not autonomous. Most people today, and this is Charles Taylor talking, think our world is a world that runs on its own terms. It is a radically disenchanted world. It is a world in which we write the book on what is good. But that very freedom we think we have to go it on our own is precisely what oppresses us. Munhofer is a prophet, I would argue, because he reminds his hearers that we have indeed been given a new center, and that center is Jesus. Uh, your quote... Uh, H on your handout really says it all. It says it all. The entire, my entire talk is a footnote to this quote. Christ is the center and power of the Bible, of the church, of theology, but also of humanity, reason, justice, and culture. It is statements like this which threw a spoke into the wheel. <laughs> um, you can just imagine how this would have sounded, right? The center and power of the Bible, of the church, of theology, but also of humanity, reason, justice, and culture. Uh, what is also so helpful about Bonhoeffer, I, I would argue, is that he never dreamt of uh, indicating that, that what is good, what, what good action is, is in any given circumstance self-evident. That the good is not always self-evident to us. In other words, 
we cannot discern what it is to act well from the circumstances around us. Rather, we need to hear from God. We need to listen to God's word. And God's word calls us, this is quote I, God's word calls us to live as human beings before God in the light of God's becoming human. This is the mark of a genuine worldly life, living for God and others in light of the God who became human in Jesus. And this is why Bonhoeffer's ethics, I would argue, holds so much promise. And this is why it is so subversive. Christians are to be oriented to the world as indeed the good world that it is. And why is it a good world? For it is a place where Christ is present. Christ is present to this world as it is. Christians don't serve a world from which God is absent. God in Christ is indeed putting the broken pieces of the world back together. Well, to conclude, I have said a lot very quickly. And to conclude, let me try to draw these, these various strands together. Bonhoeffer does not think that Christian faith has all the answers to the social and political questions of the world. But what it does do is point to Jesus. Jesus does not solve the world's problems, but he does redeem them. And that makes all the difference. Bonhoeffer reminds us, as he did to so many in his day, that Christian faith is at its center marked by a living person. Discipleship to this person costs everything and questions everything. Jesus calls us to go and follow him, or to follow him, and to go and do likewise. I think that Bonhoeffer's ethics helps us to understand something more about the go and the do. It also helps us to understand something more about what this going and doing might look like. And with that, I want to um, thank you for your attention and uh, consideration uh, of the subject, subject matter of the evening. Uh, just to, to kind of give us a little bit more of the historical context, you mentioned the Confessing Church and the fact that it's a kind of a, a, a hard to pin down. Mm -hmm. Could you just say a little bit more about that and perhaps the nature of the Barman Declaration? Mm -hmm. I mean, what, what is that church, what is that document in terms of, of mm -hmm. its place and role as part of the spoke mm -hmm. Yeah, the Barman um, Declaration is really the founding document, really the constitution of this motley group of churches known as Confessing Church. In 1934, spring of, uh, I think it was spring of 34, uh, Karl Barth and some other Reformed and Lutheran pastors met in um, Barman. And they drafted, while well, Karl Barth was the chief, uh, uh, was the chief architect and writer, uh, the Barman Declaration and the first uh, the first uh, affirmation of the Barman Declaration is a famous one. There is only one uh, one word that we must hear in life and in, in death, and that word is uh, Jesus Christ. The confessing church was um, more or less uh, got going because of folks like Bonhoeffer Barth, who was in Germany at that present time. He hadn't yet been expelled. He was expelled in 39 uh, all, in 39, all German professors, uh, German university professors were required to sign an oath of allegiance uh, to the National Socialists. He didn't, so he's expelled. But the Confessing Church was basically a, a loose collection of Reformed and Lutheran uh, communities that realized that something was going profoundly wrong, that most of their fellow Christians were more or less acquiescing for a variety of different reasons to what was going wrong, and that something something had to be done. <laughs> And um, something theological had to be done. And so by saying that there is only one word that we must hear in life and in death, and that one word being the word that is the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that was the confessing church's way of saying, uh, no, 
to the imperialistic and totalitarian claims of the National Socialists. But again, this was, I don't want to paint a romantic uh, picture of the Confessing Church. It was not this kind of angelic body that it's sometimes made out to be. It was very frail, and there was a lot of disagreement as to how, how far the spoke should be jammed into the wheel. When I read, we can and should speak about how Christ may take form among us today and here, as you said, it sounds like he was quite relativist. Sounds like he was, okay. It it sounds like he was a relativist. And putting that sentence into our world today, which is what he's telling us to do, I'm wondering who of us will first plot the assassination of Bush? (laughs) What I'm saying and suggesting is, can we as human beings put down the criteria Mm -hmm. by which we can judge and deem to take upon ourselves to do that which Bonhoeffer did. No, the answer would be an unequivocal no. And that's precisely what he was resisting. The modern world is a world that thinks that it can determine the <laughs> determine on its own what it what it what it is that it should do. And it uh, to live inhumanely is to precise is precisely to adopt that stance. The moment the church the church no longer becomes a church when it thinks that it can discern on its own what it is to do in any given situation. How about how Christ may take form among us here today in Winnipeg in 2008? We cannot come up with a list of 10 principles or ways in which that will happen. At least that's, I'm trying, I'm trying to follow Bonhoeffer's logic. He would say that the first thing that you and I need to do is we need to break bread together and we need to hear God's, well, we need to hear God's word proclaimed and then break bread together and take things from there. But to argue that uh, this is what Christian action will look like always would be, in his judgment, a, a very problematic notion. That, that, that it abbreviates the need for faith. It's all about faith and hearing the word anew each and every day in faith. And so therefore, if the Christian community is a community that is constituted by the word and by disciplined and responsible and Eucharistically circumscribed hearing of that word, then it cannot say uh, with any degree of confidence what it is that that it might do in obedience to that word in a particular given situation with which it confronts itself, right? And you brought up the situation, of course, south of the border. Christians are obviously there are lots of Christians who are Democrats and lots of Christians who are Republicans, and they fight among one, among one another. Um, but uh, but but what I think he's he helps us find a way forward because he doesn't turn Jesus and he doesn't turn the gospel into a principle. And that's what at least a lot of, I think, more conservative Christians are inclined to do, but also liberals as well. Jesus becomes our sort of role model for social justice in some of the circles I, I run in. And, and that, to me, does the same thing that the other side, uh, other end sometimes does. Uh, I think this follows up on what you were saying uh, from the same quote. Um, how Christ may take form among us today and here. 
the force of the may, mm. you can read that like it's a kind of Quaker statement. How do I actualize Jesus Christ in yes. the current world? And that kind of suggests that the incarnation was this thing that happened, and now I need to figure out how I mm. can follow Jesus by being Jesus to the world. Yes. Yes. And although I haven't actually read Bonhoeffer from the other quotes you list here, it sounds like he's saying... Jesus Christ is taking form among us today. He is present and active. The person and Lord Jesus mm -hmm. Christ is still active today. Mm -hmm. And the, we need to ask ourselves how this may be happening, as in it is happening. How do I be a full creature yeah. in that context yeah. or in response Precisely. to that? Well, you're entirely right, um, uh, entirely correct to say that uh, the whole business of the, the world being enclosed by the gospel indicates that God is actually at work in this world. That's the whole point of the doctrine of the resurrection, is that the living Lord Jesus Christ speaks today. And the task of the Christian church is to become is to become participant in that which he is doing, right? It's it's very it's really quite simple. That is what it is to be a Christian community, is to become participant in what it is that Jesus is doing. But a, a lot of, I think, uh, given sort of the very... Uh, individualistic and kind of pragmatic age in which we live, we tend to think that Jesus is stuck in the past, <laughs> right? And that it's our job to, to take over and to um, put into, to affect, to affect the kingdom, to bring in the kingdom. Sometimes you will hear people talk about bringing in the kingdom. Well, the church can bring in the kingdom. Um, the church can witness to the kingdom that is, that is, that it, and ought to and has to witness to the kingdom. That is coming to bear. That is bringing itself to bear. So that's a very sort of decidedly anti-Pelagian thing to say, uh, if you want to use those terms. Um, but that, that the kingdom is indeed God's work, and that the church uh, participates in the work that is, that is properly God's in as much as it hears and obeys and, and serves the world which, which God uh, loves in his son. In your previous answer, you'd, uh, and I think before in your lecture, you'd said uh, something along the lines of, uh, you can't actually know what is good of your own volition. Yes. Um, why not? Um, what's the reason for that? The very short answer I would give is sin. <laughs> I would argue, um, as one who's situated in the Reformed theological tradition, that our faculties are profoundly fallen, and that um, to know the good uh, is... Um, I mean, this, that's a very... You've asked a hugely complex and important question. But um, I, would, I would argue, in, in essence, that to know that which is good is to have open hands. Good is that which is received. It's not something that we construct. It's not that which is available to us via um, our, our own horizons, you might say. Um, that's not to say for a moment that there is not a lot of goodness and beauty uh, and truth in the world outside the Christian church. <laughs> I'm not saying that. But what I am saying for uh, is that the Christian community has to be decidedly, um, ought to be decidedly uh, reserved in terms of its own judgments about that which is good. That it has to learn what is good. And that, it, it, and as much as it adopts a posture of open hands vis-a-vis -vis the good which is a living person ultimately, then it will do that which is good. I would like to go one step back from the what the lady was referring to and I'm not uh, uh, American bashing. I just want to use it as, as an example. Uh, <clears throat> when we were thinking of whether or not and how we should assassinate Bush, 
was it not the conservative right that brought him to where he was? How how can we as as a church not do those mistakes? I think there are very very many similarities between what happened in, in Nazi Germany and what happened south of the border, and we are capable of doing the same thing. It's you just haven't had a chance. I think there are a couple of questions there. All of us are capable of doing that which was done in uh, the context of the Second World War, right? Um, I, that would again be another way of answering the question that was raised earlier about sin. <laughs> um, we are, as human beings, fallen human beings, profoundly turned in on ourselves, and uh, we don't like those who are not like us. I think that's something from which we need to be healed and delivered. Uh, similarities, I would, I would be, um, I, I would, I would have to take issue with that. I think that you're dealing with two profoundly different epochs, two profoundly different moments in time, and I would be very reticent to draw any kind of line between uh, the events that have transpired in the United States over the past eight years and that which transpired between 33 and 45 in, in, in Germany. Um, the Jewish question above all would be why I would, would make that case. Um, you are dealing with, uh, in the context of 33 or 45, uh, fanatical racism. Uh, I, I am personally not a fan of, of many of the developments that have occurred under the current president. But I do think that what happened, um, the atrocities perpetuated by the Nazis, of which many people, by the way, were not even aware of, right? My wife's family is German, and we're in Germany at this time, and we're not... I'm not trying to demonize the German people. What I am saying is that the Jewish question is what makes this question, this time period of this particular epoch in Western history, this particular event so unique, is that there was an extent, there was a very deliberate attempt to get rid of a race, right? And I don't, that did not happen over the past eight years. Uh, south, south of the border, regardless of what one might read of certain foreign policy decisions that were were made, um, the, 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 the Jewish question is what makes this period um, absolutely, I think, unique. Um, thanks so much for speaking tonight. I I am not a theologian either, but I'm very uh, arrested, I guess, by a that quote because I do think that as human beings, a common thing from 1933 to 2009, no matter where you are in the world, is that we tend to pick and choose uh, what we will believe um, based on what we want to hear. And I think one of the reasons why Hitler was successful was because people he, he had a propaganda that said what people wanted to hear at the time. And I think I know that I'm just as guilty. Um, I think that we can see in uh, very much in popular culture how that's affecting politics nowadays uh, in North America. Um, we will turn to the news channel that will give us the stories that are uh, told in the way that we want to hear them rather than, and I, I'm just sort of blanketing all of us, but um, I think that that dissent, that debate, that um, going a little bit further, that researching for ourselves. I mean, I know uh, being in the education system, I know this has been almost completely stripped from curriculum, mm. the idea of debate and dissent and questioning further. And we're taking our cues from popular, cu popular yeah, the culture. The idea is to be nice, right? 
Stanley Harwas, a name that will ring a bell to many of you, once said of the United Methodist Church, of which to which he no longer belongs. He's now an Episcopalian, which one could argue is even worse. But, uh, anyways, he said, you know what? I've, I, I won't attempt to um, try the accent. But he said, you know what? I figured out that the United, United Methodist Church has a doctrine of God, and its doctrine of God is this, that God is nice. And that's the United Methodist Church has a social ethic, and its social ethic is this, that we should be nice too. And um, that that's kind of what I hear you saying. And yeah, there's something very, very odd, isn't there, about living in 2008, when there are... And what, I'm, I'm, never, I'm, I'm never quite sure what to do with this thing called political correctness, frankly. Uh, well, one of the things, my, my sense is that it, it really, it has stifled a whole lot of genuine um, debate and, and dissent and the sense that there are, de- there are ideas that matter. And let's have an honest and forthright conversation about what the hell those might be, right? And, and your, your sense, um, you're, you're entirely right to say that that's, that's, that's the modern world, isn't it? That we are imprisoned by ourselves. We know of nothing beyond ourselves. The advent of, of modern, of a technological, or one of the marks of a technological site is we don't need any, any other any overarching story to explain our story, right? I write the story of my life. And don't you tell me how to write that story. Thank you, right? That's the kind of the, the ethos it seems to be to, in which we live. And that, that stifles precisely, I think, this kind of serious exchange of ideas as to what the tr- truth might be, for example. Did Bonhoeffer hope that Hitler would have seen the irony of the word made flesh being Jewish and when he considered Jews to be subhuman. Was the question, would he have seen the irony? I didn't quite hear the first part. He have hoped that Hitler would have seen the irony of the fact that Christ was a Jew and somebody he would have considered subhuman. Um, I'm sure he would have hoped. I don't know. I'm not sure. But what I, I can say is that there has been over the past two generations in Christian theology um, a tremendous emphasis on the Jewishness of Jesus. Uh, that was drilled into me when I was in seminary, and I'm forever appreciative of that by a particular professor, that Jesus is a Jew, the savior of humanity, of you, I, we're all Gentiles, I assume here, of us Gentiles is a Jew. The savior of the world is a particular, his Jewishness matters to who he is and what he does. He could not have done what he did and said what he said had he not been a Jew. And that seems to me to be a scandal that we are forever troubled by, right? We, we have a hard time accepting that God actually doesn't work in democratic means, right? The whole business of Israel, that God works through Israel to bring, bring blessing to the world, to the Gentile world. And that, I think, offends our it's always offended the church's sensibilities, it seems to me, that there would be a particular people through whom God brings redemption to all. I was wondering about his decision ultimately to be involved in this assassination plot. And if you could tell us a little bit more about that and whether the, that confessing church was involved or is this just a bunch of his buddies outside of that? Yeah. And um, it kind of seems at odds with his theology where he's, he's trying to take his reference from Jesus and he's saying that we can't make up our own reality. So I'm wondering if this theology you're telling us is sort of just a consistent development of that, or if he mm. kind of had sort of a sh- late shift in the end after he wrote his ethics. I would argue that from 30, thir- uh, in 1930, uh, 
fall of 30 to the spring of summer of 31, he, he was in New York City at Union Theological Seminary in Upper Manhattan. And uh, there he, among others, uh, ran across uh, Niebuhr um, and also made very good friends with um, a French uh, Reformed pastor uh, and pacifist by the name of Jean Lassard. And it was Lassard who convinced him of the truth of a, what you might say a pacifist reading of the New Testament. Um, so I would argue that his participation in the conspiracy was not at odds with his reading of the Sermon on the Mount. That neighborly obedience to the commandment of Christ compelled him to participate in the conspiracy. The conspiracy was not hatched by the confessing church. It did not really have anything to do with the confessing church. Um, and, it, and there were many non-Christian people involved in the conspiracy, right? Uh, it wasn't just a holy huddle, so to speak. Bonhoeffer was the chief was the chief uh, sort of theological voice, one who gave theological flesh, so to speak, to the motives, to, um, uh, or to, to why it seems fitting and right that one, that that uh, Christian people be involved in the assassination of the of the, of the Fuhrer. He was never at peace with this decision, <laughs> right? I don't want to say that he was a tortured soul, but you you never you never get the sense, especially when you read letters and papers from prison, that. This was good with his soul, right? It, it, it was not good with his soul, right? The fear and his comrades were those for whom Christ died and rose again as well. But in his name and in the name of that ideology, men and women were being killed. So a fresh hearing of the word led him and others to that particular, to take that particular judgment and to become guilty. He knew that he was guilty. See, that's the beautiful thing, I think. There's no, there's no sense in which you never get the sense that this is all, that the, that the, that the conscience is not profoundly disturbed by what's going on. And, and that, to me, seems to support the very humanity of the conspirators, that they were not, um, they were all very conflicted by that which, in which they were participating. And they were doing so as double agents, right? He was working for the, uh, the Abwehr, this was very much an underground thing. There were only a few people in the upper highest echelons of the government that knew what was going on. But I would argue it, w- it was consistent with his mature theology from 30, 31 onwards, which is 24 years old and onwards. So <laughs> It's just hard to believe. But you have to remember, this is a person who finished their doctoral dissertation and defended it when they were 21. <laughs> in his understanding that to love God and others it's kind of this ongoing process you never know for certain what is his balance between like internalizing that like for myself and more corporately for the church for what it's worth i'm not sure that that has to be balanced the i only makes sense in the light of the we if you read um the little book life together that's basically the thesis he's working with is that uh, we become Christian in community. And so what the community is enjoined to do is precisely what you and I as individuals are joined to do. I'm going to put my question into context first. Sure. Um, I grew up German and 20th generation Mennonite. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a big part of my experience mm-hmm. so far in my very few 24 years. There is often a lot of dinner table conversations about pacifism and also mm. his relation to pacifism. And one of my 
pet theories about him is that the whole, and I'm just wondering someone else's thought on this, the whole pacifism thing, I'm wondering if it was a cover. Hmm. Honestly, okay. simply because of the whole being key in the plot to assassinate Hitler, but also, I'm wondering this as well from reading his letters from prison is, I'm wondering if he did that also to kind of mess with the Nazis as well, just a little bit, hmm. that he's still writing these pieces and he's still espousing pacifism and those theories. But as well, you know, he's getting ready to kill someone. I know we brushed on the pacifism thing a little, but I'm wondering about mm -hmm. that theory that it could have just been yeah, covered. Yeah, um, the pacifism question is a complicated one. Uh, the problem with that, with pacifism, is it's an ism, right? And it's a principle and a program. And that's what he is decidedly against. That said, he thinks that there's a certain direction contained in the New Testament witness. And that it leads one in that direction. But it's not an absolute. It's not, it cannot be turned into any kind of ideology. I would be more reserved in terms of my judgment as to it being a foil. I don't think I would I would move I would use such strong language. I struggle with whether to even use that word because it it, it it's just it's one of these words that has a lot of um, many different connotations, perhaps one could say a lot of baggage. But it's 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 an ism. I S M and that's the problem. And and the Christian community is not bound up to isms of one sort or another. It's a bound up to a living person or bound up with a living person, bound by a living person who transcends all isms. Again, having said that, that there's a certain kind of direction that that living person enacts, which, which lends itself to that particular way of being. But that way of being is always relativized by the witness and words of the person who issues it himself. And this is why I think it's such rich material, is that you don't, you don't get principles and programs from it. You get a living person who transcends all of that and throws, as Flannery O'Connor said of Bart, and I think it's true of Bonhoeffer, that he throws all of the furniture of the room around, right? And that's kind of, I think, what's going on here. You know, no, no one's furniture is left unsettled. It all gets, I'm a reformed person, it all gets thrown around. And that's part of the beautiful and attractive enduring, and enduring quality, I think, of it all. My only uh, other question would be, for somebody who, for whom this is a new figure or somebody they've only heard of, what's a great place to, to, to enter in in terms of reading Bonhoeffer? And, and is there a good standard biography yes. that isn't just too dense? No. There is a standard biography. As you can see, it's um, big, in, ex in excess of uh, it's 836 pages in length. This is by Eberhard Betke. Uh, the title, of course, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, there's a new paperback edition. It's by Fortress, it, published by Fortress Press. It has lots of pictures, um, fast, which is inter uh, it's very interesting. Um, it's accessible. It's dense, but it's accessible. But the gift of a wonderful scholar is that they can write in an accessible fashion, and Von uh, Betke certainly exemplifies that. There is a much briefer, but nonetheless lucid um, introduction, and that's by Sabina Dram, uh, D-R-A-M-M -M is her last name, uh, just simply entitled Bonhoeffer that came up with Fortress uh, Press two years ago, I think. Um, so Betke or Sabina Dram's text would be ideal ways in. But I would actually argue that the best way in is just to read the primary text for yourself. Start with um, Life Together, then move to Discipleship. Chris, thank you very much. Could we uh, sort of offer a formal thank you? Thank you. It was a really good 
robustly intellectual and invigorating evening. And now, all these years later, I just want to say to Christopher, thanks again. I'd encourage you to go to the show notes where you will find a link to Christopher's homepage at the University of Otago, which gives a bit of an overview of the work he's done. He has quite a publication record. In fact, it was shortly after his departure for New Zealand that I received in the mail a copy of his book, Ethics in the Presence of Christ, courtesy of the Anglican Journal, our national newspaper. And I've linked a, a review that I wrote for the journal in the show notes as well. It's good to go back into the archives and, and dig out some of this good and rich material and represent it in this way. We'll keep doing that from time to time so that we don't lose sight of some of the fascinating voices who engaged us over the years. I'm your host, Jamie Howison. Thanks for listening.